So as I mentioned at the beginning of our service, we find ourselves now at the very beginning of a journey as God's people and God's church. This historical journey that we refer to as the season of Lent. And this season of Lent um, is based on uh, the experience of Jesus, initially beginning his ministry, before he even goes out to do anything publicly, is led to the wilderness, we are told. The Spirit of God led him to the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. The Spirit of God led him into the wilderness to be tempted. And there he wrestled with Satan about his values and his priorities and the way he'd go about his ministry and what he would do and what he would try to accomplish. It was a a constant battle for all of those 40 days. And for these 40 days, we think about the same thing. We think together about what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. How am I doing? How am I succeeding? Where might I be failing? Where am I stumbling? What does God want me to do? How does God want me to do it? It's a time really to spend 40 days um, in self-reflection and introspection and to shine God's spotlight of his word into our hearts and minds. And we're going to find some stuff that we don't like, but when you get that stuff out of the way, God brings us more life and more hope than we could ever imagine. So today we're, we're going to look um, at this whole idea through a couple passages of Scripture. One person has said that, um, that Lent is a season to ask ourselves questions. And uh, pastor and author Frederick Meekner says that during Lent, Christians are supposed to ask in one way or another what it means to be themselves. You know, what does it mean to be me, a Christ follower? And in my world and in what I do every day and my responsibilities as life continues to change, what does it mean for me to live into that identity? We're going to look at two different passages of Scripture that the lectionary calls us to look at today. Run from the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis and then one a little bit later in the book of Romans. We're going to talk about these concepts of, on the one hand, guilt, um, and then if we have time, because that'll take forever, we'll talk a little bit about grace. So from um, the book of Genesis, chapter 3, these verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat uh, fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to her eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, She took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. And so they sewed the fig leaves together and made coverings um, for themselves. Now, many of us would say, you know, I'm familiar with this story. This is a story of how sin or disobedience Um, entered into the world. This is the human saga of how we tend to kind of distance ourselves from God. I'm familiar with the story, and, and I'm sure that we're all familiar with the gist of the story, right? However, it's in the subtle nuances of these early uh, verses from Genesis chapter 3 
that the most powerful part of the story is communicated by God about what he really wants us to know. For instance, we're told early on that um, the serpent was the most crafty of all the creatures that God had created, or um, the most shrewd, as a better translation might be, not overtly, powerfully suggesting disobedience to people, but kind of subtly working behind the scenes, trying to deceive us. The most crafty of all of the creatures that the Lord God had created. And right away, in the very first thing that he says to Eve, we find out how shrewd this serpent can be. Did God really say that you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? Did God really say that? So he isn't suggesting that God didn't say it. He's simply saying to Eve, well, did God, are you sure God said that? Or might have God said something completely different than that? Are you certain, Eve, that that's exactly what God said? Now, to understand what's going on here in Genesis chapter 3, it's really important that we understand what happened in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 is the whole creation story. Man is created. They're placed in the garden. God gives them an instruction. And that instruction is you can eat of any of the, any of the trees in the, in the garden here. You can eat from any tree, but not this particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So that's what God said. But the shrewd serpent didn't say that, did he? Did God say you couldn't eat from any of the trees? Well, Eve, being a good student in Sunday school, said, no, God never said that. That isn't what God said. God said there was one particular tree that we couldn't eat from. It was the tree that was in the middle of the garden. We shouldn't eat from that tree, nor should we even touch it, or we're going to die. Is that really what God said? God said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But he didn't say that if you touch it, you're going to die. So right away, Eve is starting to just twist the truth of what God has said just a little bit. She's just, you know, a couple bubbles off level. It's not exactly true, but it's close enough, right? I mean, close enough is good. I mean, it's good enough in horseshoes. So why would it be good enough with God's word? Well, certainly the snake said, you won't die. I mean, here's what God really meant when he said that. He, I mean, he didn't mean that. This is what God really meant. And Satan went on to say what, what he suggested that God really meant, and, and Eve didn't want to argue with him. She kind of liked what he had to say. What did God say? How do you remember it, Eve? I mean, he couldn't really have meant that. What he really meant was this, and Eve is completely complicit in this whole conversation. She doesn't get off the hook at all. It might not seem like much, but just being slightly off can make all the difference in the world. It's very shrewd. It's very subtle. It's not like the serpent is suggesting blatant disobedience to God. Go out and have an orgy or whatever the case might be. Cheat, steal, lie. He's just saying just a little bit of a half-truth. What sounds plausible enough sounds like something God might say. Close enough to the real word of what he said. This is not Adam and Eve's story. This is our story. Eve was deceived by the snake who altered ever so slightly what God had said and who appealed to Eve's desire to fulfill her own pleasurable needs and her self-interest. And we do this occasionally on our own. We 
kind of take what the Word of God really says and then we kind of massage it a little bit to, to fit better into our culture and in our idea of what we want God to say to us. So let's take one that, that I kind of you know, had conversations with people about in the past. People are always kind of curious. About, tell me, tell me Rev, about this concept of tithing, for instance. I read in the Old Testament where God expects us to tithe and, and where people went into the fields and uh, they harvested the best part of their crop and when they harvested the best part first, they took that best 10%, that, that first fruits, that best 10% and they brought it to the storehouse and they distributed it to, to the needy. You know, that's what they did in the Old Testament. They gave 10%. I mean, but certainly God doesn't expect us to do that now. I mean, that was Old Testament law and... Jesus came and set us free from the law, so we're, we're kind of free from that now. We don't have to do that now. I mean, we, we know we have to kind of give, you know, tithes and offerings to the church for the ministry of God, but we don't, you know, he doesn't really expect us to tithe. I mean, 10%, 10% is a lot of money, 10%. He doesn't really expect us to do that now. And we can rationalize about how we give money and do things in other places, and we kind of just, we don't really say, well, that was bad, or that was, he doesn't really, he, he just, we just kind of twist it just a little bit into our favor and what's pleasurable for us. I mean, I've had people ask me the question, I, I kind of get it, it's a great question. You know, it's like stump the rev. So, about this tithing thing. Should I tithe on my gross income or my net income? You know, let's, let's cut it really thin. And I don't have a clever answer for that. I simply say it depends on how much you want to be blessed. So there you go. So that's all I got for you on that. Or what about these moral guidelines that I read about in the scripture? You know, it really says in the Bible that, you know, we should never have sex before or outside of marriage. That isn't what God wants for us. But that is just so archaic. Do you realize the culture? And and, I mean, we live in 2017 now. He can't expect that for us. That was great back then. But now the whole, I mean, if you read the statistics on the percentage of high school kids who are engaging in sexual activity, there are not a lot of them who are married. So he certainly can't mean that now. And isn't it, I mean, it's all kind of relative. I mean, you know, I kind of stay within those boundaries, but other people are much worse than I am at, at, at keeping those moral guidelines, and so I'm a pretty good person. I mean, social psychologists call that the self-serving bias. We all think we're a little bit above average. You know? I'm an above-average husband. Oh, Becky's here today. You could ask her. Never mind. I'm not an above-average husband. I'm an above-average parent. I'm an above-average worker. I'm an above-average musician. Uh, you know, we all think I'm an above, I'm above average as a, as a disciple. Of, I'm, above, I'm above average. You know, we all think we're above average. Have you ever met me said, you know, I'm kind of below average. I kind of stink at that. We all think we're above average. That's what we do. And so we get into kind of this idea of relativity. Well, compared to the rest of the world, we're pretty good people. But where does it say in the Bible that you're supposed to compare yourself to the rest of the world? You know, here's what God lays out for us. It's an instruction manual. Maybe you ought to try to live by it, he's suggesting. I mean, it's tax season. Are you aware of this? Some of you are working on your taxes. I was working on my taxes. You know, whenever you work on your taxes, you kind of sit over all this paper, and, you know, I keep every receipt. It's all perfect. I'm only going to... You know, sometimes, you know, we fudge a little bit on our taxes, right? I mean, the temptation is always kind of there, and the tax preparer is only as good as the information you give them, and, you know... 
you know, everybody kind of cheats on their taxes, don't they? I mean, and the government gets so much money, and I don't really like the way they're spending it. And so you see this whole rationalization thing that we go through. It's just like Genesis chapter 3. Well, what did God really say about being honest? What does God really expect us to be as his people? And can we just fudge a little bit, or does he really expect us to be obedient to all of that? You know, our natural bent is not to lean in toward God. I mean, this is not what we do naturally. I mean, and if you're really paying attention, you, you can find that in Genesis chapter 3. And the first verse it says um, that, that, that the Lord God had declared that the serpent was the most crafty or shrewd of all the creatures that the Lord God had made, the Lord God. And then when Satan or the serpent who represents Satan, asked Eve the question, he says, did God really say that? And when Eve answers, she said, no, God said this. I know it's a very subtle nuance, and you are going to be so happy you're here this morning to hear this. Or not. Lord God is a reference to the authoritative power of God, and when someone is your Lord, you want to obey everything they offer to you. And that just very subtly, Satan drops the Lord and says, God. Because Satan doesn't want to get that close to asking us to obey the authority of God. He's saying, well, you know, you don't really have, you don't really lean into God. You kind of lean And then Eve, right away, does exactly the same thing. Our tendency is to lean away from God and not into God. It's our natural bent. What's at the heart of the matter for us? At Elmer's Church during the season, we're trying to figure out what's at the heart of the matter. Why do I need, and today, why do I need forgiveness? What is at the heart of the matter? The heart of the matter is we naturally lean away from God. So when you go to the doctor and the doctor wants to uh, figure out what might be wrong with you, um, they do a lot of physical exams, but the first thing they do is take this long family history, Right? You know, did your grandparents have this? Did your parents have that? Anybody have cancer? Anybody have a heart problem? Anybody have, you know, all sorts of issues. They take this long family history because family history is one of the strongest determiners of what we're going to suffer from in the future. We genetically are predisposed to get what our parents had. We're genetically predisposed to follow in the footsteps of Adam and Eve. That's our family history. And our family history is not to lean in toward God and to embrace him, but to lean away from God and to serve ourselves. And it's not always overt or noticeable. In fact, it's usually subtle because we fall to deceit. Why do I need forgiveness? Well, because I'm a sinner. And Lent is the season in which we spend some time cleansing the soul. And so I thought it would be good for us just to spend a minute now in a prayer of confession from the Book of Common Prayer as we seek to be God's servants. Let's pray together. Most holy and merciful Father, we confess to you and to one another and to the whole communion of saints in heaven and on earth that we have sinned by our own fault in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. 
We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not forgiven others as we have been forgiven. Have mercy on us, Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Some of you will remember um, Paul Harvey, longtime famous uh, radio personality. He'd have a show every day. Listen, it might be 10, 15 minutes. He'd talk about all sorts of different news. And he would always tell a story. Um, and he got to a certain point in the story, and then there would always be a commercial because you've got to pay the bills. And then he would come back and he would always just say, and now the rest of the story. So he'd always kind of leave you hanging on the cliff and you were right there. And now he, he would say the rest of the story, which was kind of a turning point. And the story usually was kind of dark and negative early on. And then it would turn to something beautiful and wonderful in the end. And that's exactly what happens here in our uh, lectionary passages for the day. The story of our relationship with God doesn't end in Genesis with guilt and shame. That tends to be where we lean as people. We like to park in guilt and shame. I don't understand why. It's just part of who we are. But when you turn the page and get the rest of the story, God moves us toward his grace, his unmerited favor. Now, to look at that, we're going to look at Romans chapter 5, uh, verses 7 through 12. And this translation I'm going to read is kind of a clunky translation. And the reason it's going to sound kind of clunky is because it was done by a New Testament uh, um, scholar who took the exact Greek language and kind of translated it this way and didn't pretty it up so it read more clearly. But the essence of what, um, of what Paul wrote is this. If by the trespass of the one, the many died, how much more the grace of God and the gift in grace, which is of one man, Jesus Christ, has overflowed to the many. And not as the one who sinned, the gift, for the judgment is from one to condemnation, but the effect of grace is from many trespasses to justification. For if by the trespass of the one death reigned through the one, how much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in the life through the one Jesus Christ. Now that is complicated and clunky. And that's only really three verses out of the whole lectionary text from uh, verse 12 all the way through verse 21. But the reason to focus here is the essence of what Paul wants to write. And all of those verses is found in these three verses. And the rest of it is redundant. It's repetitive. It's over and over again. Through one man came death. Through another one man comes life. Through one man came guilt and shame, and through another man comes the gift of God's grace. In fact, in all of those verses, 12 through 21, Paul uses the word grace seven different times. And he wants us to understand it and to get it. We understand that guilt and shame is our natural bent, and it flows through our veins naturally. And the only thing that can reverse that in our life is this this gift of grace, which overwhelms everything. That runs through us naturally. It is God's gift. Sin is pervasive. 
The consequence of sin, Paul says, is death. And little parts of us, if you're paying attention, die every single day because of our self-centeredness. It happens in relationships that die a little bit just every day or well-intentioned plans that die every day or goals that we want to pursue that die every day or careers that fade away every single day. And in the end, all of us are literally going to die, which is a consequence of sin. But the consequence of grace is life, and it's eternal life. And we need to get rid of the idea that the only time we ever can experience eternal life is after we literally physically die. The New Testament teaches us very clearly that you and I can live in eternal life right now. We can experience all the benefits. You know, John says that, that Christ came to give us life and life in its most abundant form. It's not like, well, in the end, in the sweet by and by, then you're really going to get it. No, no, no. We can live and experience the beauty of God's life-giving eternal life currently and then in the end it only gets even better than that but part of being part of the body of christ is to experience this life that god promises and gives us now through his grace jesus was a grace dispenser i mean all you got to do is read through the gospels just pick, pick one and you'll find out that jesus is a grace dispenser a constant grace dispenser so one day he's walking through a town and he comes across a crowd of people and they're all gathered around a woman who's kneeling on the ground. And this is a woman who's been caught in the act of adultery. It's not like somebody suspected her of it. It's not like the president, you know, tweeted about it. It really happened. Oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't get political. But it's funny. So, so this woman literally was caught in the act of adultery. And by Roman law and by Jewish law, The punishment for getting caught in the act of adultery was to be stoned to death. That was justice. Seems a little barbaric to us, but in the first century, that's the way they rolled. And Jesus showed up, and they thought, well, let's give him a theological test. So this woman was caught in adultery. What, What do you think we should do? And there was a long pause. I mean, a long pause. I mean, such a long pause that even Jesus kind of knelt down on the ground and wrote in the dust, and we're not sure what he wrote. And then finally Jesus said, let the person who has never sinned cast the first stone. And everybody dropped their stones and walked away. And the woman who was kneeling, who had been caught in the act of adultery and knew exactly what to expect. Let's not think she had never seen this happen to someone else previously. She knew exactly what was going to happen. My sense is she was kneeling on the ground with her head hung down, just waiting for the stones to come, thinking that not only were they going to stone her, but she deserved to be stoned. She deserved that consequence. And I'd like to think that Jesus put his hand on her chin and and lifted her face up into his and said, no one has condemned you and neither do I. Go and sin no more. That's grace. That's grace. What we deserve and what we should get is justice. Grace is receiving a gift that we don't deserve in spite of ourselves. 
Peter was a faithful follower of Jesus, so much so that Jesus had all sorts of confidence in him. And Jesus said, hey, look, when I die and I pass and my ministry has to be carried on by others, you know what, Peter? I'd like you to be the rock of the church, rock upon whom the church is built. You are the man. You are going to be key. It is great. I'm so proud of you. This is what you're going to do. And Jesus is arrested. And he's placed on trial. He's beaten in the city square. He's marched through the streets carrying a cross. And while all that is going on, some people reckon, oh, Peter, Peter, aren't you one of, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? Aren't you one of those? Oh, no idea what you're talking about. Never knew the guy. Never seen him before. Just kind of hanging around like everybody else. I mean, not just once did this faithful follower of Jesus deny him. Not just once, but a second time and then a third time. Peter was filled with shame and guilt. Jesus is buried. He experiences his resurrection. Peter's out in a boat all by himself. Can't believe what he did. And Jesus comes to him. And Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Three times. The same number of times that Peter had deserted. That's grace. That's grace. When you can turn your back on someone, when you can leave them behind, when you can deny even knowing them, and they love you anyway, That's grace. That was Jesus Christ. For whatever reason, we tend to move toward guilt and shame. And sometimes we even just wallow in it there. And we just can't figure out how to get out, even though God gives us this wonderful gift. And I certainly don't think that guilt is a bad thing. Guilt can be a good thing. Because it reminds us of how we've gone out of bounds. But God never leaves us out of bounds. He always finds a way to bring us back. And to embrace us. You see, guilt and grace go together. One without the other is only part of the story. Swiss doctor Paul Ternier wrote a book entitled Guilt and Grace. And in that book he wrote, I cannot study this very serious problem of guilt with you without raising the very obvious and tragic fact that religion or the church, my own as well as that of all believers, can crush instead of liberate. We tend to move toward judgment and criticism of other people rather than saying this is a grace-filled place. And no matter what you've done or who you are, we love you. Guilt always needs the accompanying concept of grace or it's incomplete. The late Lou Smeads, who's a Calvin graduate, taught at Fuller Theological Seminary, wrote a book entitled Shame and Grace. And in that book, he writes, guilt was not my problem as I felt it. I mean, when I first read that sentence in his book, I'm going, he can't be Christian reformed. That's not even possible. (laughs) 
But if you keep reading, you go, oh, he's just like the rest of us. Guilt was not my problem as I felt it. What I felt most was a glob of unworthiness that I could not tie down to any concrete sins that I was guilty of. What I needed more than pardon was a sense that God accepted me and owned me and held me and affirmed me and would never let me go, even if he was not too much impressed with what he had in his hands. Amen to that, right? Amen to that. Just this unhealthy glob of, I'm not worthy of this God. And Jesus said, yeah, I know know you're not worthy of it, but it's grace. You don't get to earn it. It's my gift to you. Lent is a time for self-examination. It's a time to let the spotlight of God's word shine in places where it often doesn't get to shine. It's a time for us to ask of ourselves serious questions, uncomfortable questions. But important questions. Here's a list of questions I put together. Have I only taken half-truths of the gospel and rationalized away any of God's desired obedience? Have I allowed myself to be deceived into thinking that I don't have a problem with pride or self-centeredness? Have I embraced the self-serving bias by believing that I am an above-average disciple and therefore have few areas for growth? Am I burdened with guilt and shame because I will not accept the grace of Jesus Christ? Do I shower others with the grace of Christ in the same measure of which I've received it myself? These questions aren't fun. They can be painful and difficult. But they get to the heart of the matter. And when we unburden the heart of guilt and shame, grace overwhelms us and pours out of us. Will you pray with me, please? God in heaven, we thank you for um, a few weeks to reflect more carefully on what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, to ask ourselves penetrating and important questions, to wrestle with the Holy Spirit, to figure out how we deal with temptation every day. We thank you for your grace poured out unto us every single day. Help us to open our hearts and minds to receive more and more of your grace. And as we receive it, let it flow out of our hearts and minds and into the lives of others. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Before we... um, um, continue to worship with our tithes and offerings. Just one announcement, and that is that next Sunday as we worship together, we're going to celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And so as you think about uh, your life with God and your relationship with Him and discipleship, you might want to think about areas of your life in terms of receiving the sacrament. We don't earn the sacrament. It's a sacrament of grace. Um, but 
engage in some time of self-reflection and confession and prepare yourselves to come tomorrow, uh, next Sunday as we celebrate this sacrament together. Let us continue to worship with our tithes and our offerings.